hey, great live panel coming up in Los Angeles with all of the writers of Conan. They're really funny. Get tickets, support 826LA, come learn how the Conan Writer's Room works. Check it out at writerspanel.tumblr.com or follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. I'll post that link all the time. Hope to see you there. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writer's Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner Ben Acker for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right, it's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Guys, Justin Adler's here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Justin is the... <laughs> Justin is the creator of Life in Pieces, which did 22 episodes this year. 22 which is big ones. Too many. Nobody, don't you know people don't do that anymore? It is, it is a huge task, but um, it was exciting uh, and great. But it is interesting to uh, talk to people who do cable shows or Netflix shows or Amazon shows. And um, one of our uh, cast members, Dan Backadall, who plays the character of Tim, uh, also recurs quite a bit on Veep, Mm -hmm. which is an excellent show. And he talked to me a little bit about their process. And it's amazing um, the opportunity they're afforded to really work on their scripts, rehearse with the actors, let the actors improvise, come back. Uh, We oftentimes um, don't ever see anything until we're shooting it. And then we have to scramble, especially if it's been rewritten from the table read, where we haven't even heard it. Mm-hmm. We have to scramble pretty quickly on our feet to try and uh, make many scenes work. Um, and luckily, really? uh, we have such an incredible cast who, who are so talented and gifted, especially improvising, if we need help. They're always there to seemingly to help bail us out. So, um, But yeah, 22 episodes is... Is uh, is a lot, but um, it's been it's been awesome. That's great. And you kind of came up in network TV yes. anyway. Will you just give us a list of some of the things people may have seen your name on, just so we can kind of set that baseline? Oh, it's a whole bunch of failed shows. Um, so they may have come and gone really quickly. Uh, and actually, talking about twenty two, so many of the shows that I uh, have been on the staffs of over the years. Uh, came and went after 13, some even faster than really? that. Um, I, I, I started as a um, as an assistant on The Larry Sanders Show. I didn't know that. Uh, which was huge for me. That was like my graduate school, and oh, that was an amazing experience that left a huge imprint on me for the, the rest of my career. Um, and, uh, and then my first job out of the gates was on Futurama. They needed a staff writer for like the last six, six episodes of their first order of 13, and I knew nothing about science fiction, and I was clearly I was sh- as shocked as anyone that they were interested in hiring me, and um, so that was that was short lived, but um, an interesting first experience, um, and and really fun. Uh, and um, I wound up doing a show called Sammy, which was an animated show about David Spade's life with his I, father. Yeah. That was NBC spent a ton of money on that, and it came and went very quickly. Um, I went to New York City and and did a show, a great show, um, created by uh, Tom Wolfe and Barb Wallace called Welcome to New York. Uh, it was starring Christine Baranski and Jim Gaffigan, Sarah Gilbert, Rocky Carroll. Um, it was a great show. It was paired with Bette Midler's show at the time on CBS, and it just wasn't. Had it been like with News Radio or something like that, I think it would have it would have done great. It was terrific. Um, and then I came back to LA. Um, and uh, worked on a show called Bob Patterson, which was Jason Alexander's first show right. after Seinfeld. Another big, 
A lot of money was spent. It was a big to-do, and it was a great job to get and and hilarious group of people and such a fun time, and Jason was amazing. But we were canceled after our third episode. Um, I did meet my wife on that staff of that show. <laughs> so as Jason had said, when we were canceled, something good came of it, which right. was terrific. Well, you get something out of every experience, right? right? And, and that I got a wife <laughs> and now three kids. Very and, nice. um, so it's that was that was fantastic. Um, and then I spent three years on a show called Less Than Perfect, mm-hmm. which was a terrific job. It was a great group of people, really talented cast, amazing writers. Um, the writers on our first season were all wound up being you know huge showrunners tom hertz mitch mitch herwitz christine zander um it was it was an impressive group of people to work with uh and i learned a lot there um so where were you by this time you had kind of kicked around on a few shows but they were all sort of short short lived were you working your way through the ranks yeah were you every year i was kind of going up and um and i had written a larry sanders spec Mm -hmm. while um while I was an assistant there. And um, a lot of my friends at the time, uh, and today even still, uh, hate me for this. I never had to write another spec because for some reason people kept reading that one. And it somehow got me job after job after job, which I don't know how it did. But um, So that was the script that would go around every year, and I would find my way onto another staff somehow. What was the story of your uh, Larry Sanders spec? It was about a fake relationship between um, Larry and Cindy Crawford, um, like sort of a very sort of public, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I won't name names of what you know, sort of public <laughs> relationships have been sort of fabricated sure. for um, for mutual benefit and how it sort of imploded for them. Oh, funny. That's uh, great. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I bounced around a bunch mm-hmm. and then sort of settled in on less than perfect. And, um, and then after that, uh, I was on a show called Samantha who, mm-hmm. uh, Christina Applegate and, um, a show called better off Ted. Um, again, short, these are sort of short lived, mm-hmm. um, shows, but all fun with great groups of people and super yeah. talented writers and cast. That's great. And then is life in pieces the first show that you're running? Life in Pieces is the first show I'm running. That's great. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Thank you. How, how do you run your room? And, and sort of what, what have you You'll taken? You'll have to ask the writers on the staff that question. <laughs> no, it's not, a, better it's not a, a quality question, a qualitative yeah. question. Um, but, like, what does it look like on a day-to-day? And sort of and going into it, what did you cherry-pick from your experiences? You know, you've worked with some really great showrunners. I have. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think... Um, my personality helped, I think, define sort of how I not only run the writer's room, but run the show in general, mm-hmm. which is I'm not a big micromanager, um, mostly because I feel like I'm not capable of micromanaging. And I work with a lot of people who are, and I'm so impressed and blown away <laughs> by them. My wife being one of them, she's amazing at doing everything. And so I really rely heavily on other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and as the sort of That's final arbit- you know, arbiter of what goes in and what doesn't, um, the room has a massive amount of um, uh, autonomy, and uh, and it really is. Uh, I I hope they would agree that it's a it's a really fun, comfortable working environment where anyone can speak up and say anything, no matter the level mm-hmm. of writer that they are. I've been in rooms where a lot of high level writers are the only ones that really sort of speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lower level ones are kind of sitting there cowering in the corner. Um, fear has been sort of a motivating factor in some rooms I've been in. Sure. Uh, and our atmosphere is very relaxed and um, sometimes too relaxed if any of the writers are listening. <laughs> um, and uh, But everyone feels comfortable saying anything, which I think is hugely important in a writer's Absolutely. room. Well, like you're hiring these people for a reason. Yes. Right? You want to hear their voices. Yes. Um, what was that process like for you? I mean, again, this is the first staff you You've put together well. Uh, my assistant Catherine Konietzka was am- amazing at compiling a list of basically every writer available in town, and she did this incredible database where even agents around town were like, "Can I get a copy of that?" It was pretty extraordinary awesome. the coverage she did. So um, between Catherine and um, Aaron Kaplan, who's a producer on mm-hmm. the show, and all the various. Um, uh, different projects he has going. He has a huge breadth sure. of knowledge of who's available, who's good, who's not good. Um, the studio um, had a, had a, a, a lot of great ideas, and they had people on deals as well. And um, so those were people to consider because mm-hmm. um, they certainly help with your budget. Um, sure. 
when you're compiling a staff, which is which is an important element. It's sort of like assembling a fantasy, you know, football roster. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it came down to people I knew or had heard about, or um, or people who just came so highly recommended. I have had to give them a shot, but it's a it's a tough task when there's hundreds and hundreds yeah. of script on scripts on your desk, and to be able to sift through when there's you know there's a, a lot of talented people, but there's you know. The, the really talented ones really do sort of shine. So. I would think so. What what did you find yourself responding to, and what kind of stuff were you reading? Um, well, it's interesting. It's I was I respond to a voice. I respond to um, uh, to jokes I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, things that were feeling story ideas that were feeling more familiar. I would shy away from from things that felt unique. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's challenging these days because I feel like there's a trend toward everyone writing um, spec pilots as opposed to writing specs of old shows like we used to writing yeah. a Seinfeld spec or whatever. And I think they're two entirely different uh, muscles that you're exercising. And um, so, it, it, you know, and I understand like agents today obviously know maybe there's a chance they could sell that that sort of um, – that spec pilot and and what that can do for that writer's career, but it's some people aren't great at writing pilots, and that doesn't mean they're not a great writer on your staff. Sure, and especially um, these, you know, if you're 22 years old writing a spec pilot, right, with know, no that's, experience, that's a tough thing. It's really tough. Um, so I kind of miss the days of being able to read a bunch of samples of shows where you know, okay, they clearly get the voice of all these different characters, they get the tone of the show. They understand their way of telling stories, mm-hmm. which uh, which you don't get at all from reading a pilot. You just see, do they have good story structure? Right. Um, do the characters have a voice? Yeah. Uh, and is the overall idea interesting and sure. unique? Um, you know, yeah, you can see if they can sell a joke. But yeah. Can they sell a joke in your voice, which is ultimately the voice of the show? Right. Yeah, and some people only have one voice. Not yeah. that that's not, not a talent in its own right, but it's it's sort of different to be successful on a you know, staff of a TV show. Absolutely. Um, how how set for you was the voice of the show? Tell me about a little bit about pitching the pilot, and because it's a you know the structure of it gets talked about a lot. Uh, it's an unusual structure, especially for network TV, but it's an unusual structure for TV anywhere in that it is this sort of anthology within a half hour sitcom. It came about in a very unique way that I think in some ways is the only way it could have come about. It was not a pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, I had pitched, uh, it's a long story, but I can, I can tell you. I have time. Um, uh, I had pitched and sold a series to NBC um, based on Cameron Crowe's movie Say Anything. Mm-hmm. And um, when it was announced in the trades, we celebrated on Friday, on Monday it was announced in the trades, on Tuesday it was dead. <laughs> Did you even write it? Hadn't even written it. Oh but God. I spent all this time sort of recreating a new version of that yeah. movie for television, which is... Um, as, Do you want to pitch it to me? As, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> it was basically... Um, it was basically ten years later. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, the whole world, <laughs> I, the way it all worked out probably was way to my benefit because I think I would have come under a lot of fire for taking something that was so beloved by a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and um, kind of a no way to, to succeed situation. Um, uh, but anyway, Cameron Crowe um, heard about it. I guess he hadn't heard about it prior. Right. And was not happy, um, even though we had the legal right through the studio right. uh, to do the show. Um, and so then everyone quickly became very uncomfortable with being involved in something that, that sure. the sort of auteur of it didn't want out there. Um, Aaron Kaplan and I, Aaron was producing it, we, um, we, everyone quickly backed out and, and it all went away. And it was late in pilot season, and I had to come up with something. And the studio said, Can, are there any ideas that you have to write a spec very quickly? Because oh, wow. um, it was too late to pitch at that point. Um, How late was it? It was September or October, something oh, wow. like that. Um, and But too late for me to sort of work on compiling. Yeah. I mean, as writers can tell you, the, the amount of work that goes into preparing a pitch 
is probably 70% of the process. And then actually writing the pilot is 30%. Yeah. Um, if that. If that, <laughs> yeah. So um, it's... Uh, it, it was a it was a tall task to try and come up with a new pitch. Hmm. So there was an idea that I had had that I had pitched out in a few development meetings, and everyone sort of looked at me with a blank stare. Where I was like, "I'd love to do like a family show. Like think of Looney Tunes. Bugs Bunny was a huge influence on me as a kid. <laughs> think of that, but it's a family, and it's the same melting pot of these same characters every week." And you never know which story they're going to be in, but we'll tell them in four equal independent stories. Um, uh, every week. And every time I would sort of pitch that, people were like, ah, it's a tough sell. And even my wife, uh, who's, um, who's an amazing uh, writer and brilliant, uh, looked at me like, I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> and so- Which makes sense. I mean, it does sound like a hard pitch because you have this hurdle, right? This structural hurdle, which... Seemed, it seems so difficult for, for someone to wrap their head around. Although hearing the Looney Tunes aspect and knowing the final product, that sounds very clear to me. Well, I, it was clear to me, too, so I was getting frustrated. And I, sure. But I had put it sort of on the back burner. And then this opportunity came about where the studio was like basically saying, we're paying you to do something. You need to deliver a script. What ideas do you have? Swing for the fences. Oh, I was like, I'm going to go for it with, with this idea. And they were supportive, and I wrote it in, like, a week. Um, it's, I didn't really have the time to come up with new family members, so I basically <laughs> used my own family. Absolutely. And, um, and the next week it was sold to CBS, and they That's wanted to crazy. make it. And, um, and then every step of the way from there on out through the pilot process was just um, – it was amazing, and I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop because I've been involved. I've had other pilots. I've been. I've helped on other pilots. They're such a nightmare. I was waiting for the the fog to roll in and the wolves to start howling, and it never did. And everyone kept wow. reminding me the other shoe did drop when your entire pitch imploded after <laughs> right. you sold to anything. So it was interesting how it came about. Um, in such a unique way, but I think had I just tried to go pitch that idea, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. So as it was developed, and, and obviously there wasn't a lot of time for development, did you get notes about the structure, or was it sort of general how to how to get this on TV notes? I got very few notes. The studio gave me notes on the fourth story. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about because I gave him a quick sort of beat sheet before mm-hmm. I uh, wrote it, and um, we changed it. I changed it to what it to what okay. it was in, in the pilot of a of a, a dad sort of having a mortality crisis and throwing his own you know funeral for his birthday party. Um, and then when we turned it into the network, they had no notes, and they had no notes during the um, shooting of the pilot. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. They were super supportive. That's and, great. Um, it was it was terrific. Did you have to once it was sold? Did you have to? Were there conversations about what the series would look like? And and you know, in the pilot, the stories all sort of tie together, which hasn't been the case as the series has gone on. It's it's been this more sketch comedy within yes. a sitcom format, which is very. There was a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. And my... I, I don't regret it, but it was definitely... Um, I don't know if it was a misstep to having the pilot at all come together, mm-hmm. but that was not my idea for the series. My idea for the series were these, were these four independent stories, and I was sort of adamant they had to be independent because mm-hmm. I was really sticking to this Looney Tunes yeah. uh, idea. And model. So, um, so then once the pilot was shot, uh, they wanted you know they want a couple sample story ideas um, for episodes. Well, for us, an episode is four ideas. So four or six um, episodes yeah. is you know twenty four ideas of stories. And this was before you had a room, right? This, this was is all you. yeah. This was all me. So um, so suddenly I was like, oh god, what did I get myself <laughs> into here? Um, and uh, but I presented it to them, and um, they were on board. They just had a, they they were just. I think CBS's um, biggest question was, we just want to make sure it's not the same groupings every week. And I was ab- you know absolutely excited. Yeah. My whole sort of I think what's 
what's so fun about the um, structure is all the different permutations of characters you can mix together. Absolutely. Um, and so, each one, I mean, I will I'll absolutely say this for the show, that each character is such a, a strong voice and a strong character. And that starts with you and it comes down to casting, I think. Um, but that any combination you put together, it's going to be a fun combination. You know, you're going to get an interesting story out of it. Well, thank you. And I and we have yet to even explore some of them to the, yeah. which is really exciting for um, if there's a season two to be able to do that. Uh, but uh, the cast, as you said, is they play such a huge part in that. Like I said, I, I sort of modeled it after my family and my family structure. But as soon as it was cast, the characters changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And most of them, if not all of them, are nothing like the characters that they were initially sort of based on. Oh, interesting. How have they changed? Can you give us an example? um, Well, sure. Uh, Jim Brolin plays the father character, which I uh, had written in the pilot, um, more based on my father. And then when Jim came in, he had really responded to the character in the script. But what was interesting is he had sort of imprinted a different idea of who that character was, just based on the limited material of the pilot. And he was really excited to play his own father. Um, So this character is very much now based on his dad, who was much goofier than my dad. My dad's hilarious, but um, uh, in a sharper way, in a less goofy way. And Jim's dad... Uh, always had a cocktail in his hand with an umbrella in it because he felt like then it was a party, it wasn't drinking. Um, <laughs> and he uh, he was a, uh, an aeronautical engineer, um, and so that inspired us to make Jim's character, John, a pilot, hmm. um, which uh, my dad owned a men's clothing store. So, I mean, two entirely different characters once they were once they were cast. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. At what point... uh, Clearly, this must have come, you know, before the shooting of the pilot, all these realizations. So, you know, what's the conversation you have with your writers once they come in and all they have is the pilot to go go on? Um, We we sat there for the first couple days of pre-production once we had assembled the writer's room and and talked through each character. Hmm. And... Um, because even I didn't really know. I mean, I, I knew what was sort of based on the world I had initially established based for my own reality. Um, but like we're talking about, once the cast sort of took over those characters, things were changing at a rapid pace. And so we walked through sort of the strengths and, and weaknesses of the cast members, what they play well, what they do well. They're sort of, hmm. They all have such a voice themselves. And interestingly, they all really are similar to the characters themselves in real life in a, to a pretty great extent, um, <laughs> almost across the board. Um, and then we have fun as writers getting to know them better as people to be able to write to them who they Absolutely. are as people and their strengths. Um, so that's really informing the characters, too. Uh, so um, someone... Uh, like Dan Backadall, uh playing the equivalent of my brother-in-law, uh, they are nothing alike. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dan brings such, uh, again, a, a goofy quality, but such a gifted actor and an amazing improviser um, and a really nuanced actor who can do both you know, comedic and dramatic things equally as well. And I feel like across the board we have that. We have... We have someone de- described the cast, and I, I think it's selling them short comedically, but they described uh, the cast as really good dramatic actors who can be funny. Um, and um, but I think we have uh, we have some really gifted people that can um, that can really straddle both mm-hmm. you know sides oh, for of the sure. line. And I think, and for many of them, we've kind of seen that through their careers too, like Colin and Diane Weiss. Yeah, certainly. Um, I feel like there there is the possibility because you're you're dealing with so little real estate for every character in an episode there's the possibility for them to become cartoonish. How do you how do you avoid going, you know, to 10 on every single line of dialogue because there's so little for them to do. I mean there's a lot for them to do but there, it's, it's so a, little time. It's a great question and it's um it's a challenge. I think not going to 10 in comedy in general is the biggest challenge. I think yeah. everyone's instinct is to always try and push harder and go further uh, out of this desperation to to get a laugh and to get noticed and to be heard above the sort of white noise of everything out yeah. there. 
and I think restraint is the hardest. It's really the most challenging thing, but I think it's what makes the best shows the most successful is that they're not trying too hard mm-hmm. um, and that they do have restraint and they never sell out character for a joke. Yeah. Uh, because in so many comedies I've worked on and that are on the air, they'll sell out characters left and right just to go for a joke. And um, it's dangerous. Sure. And um, so uh, to answer your question, I think we really just try and write um, what feels real and um we always sort of put on our our broadness meter. I think there's been certain storylines and certain moments that have crossed the line of broadness that I feel like I sort of lost that restraint. And um, and um, some of those moments, I, I you know, I, I wish I could take back. But um, but I think overall, we just have to have a really good handle on where that line is mm-hmm. of, of what's real, what's relatable, uh, and that gives us the best chance, I think, for people to connect with the, the material. Absolutely. I mean, this sort of, it speaks to sort of a larger question, I think, about writing comedy for network. You know, net, network TV is sort of the last place where it's these sort of all-ages comedies. I think anyone can watch Life in Pieces of any age, and, you know, no matter what your family situation is, and find something to latch on to there. Is this... You know, are there conversations with the network, especially early on, I would imagine, about not necessarily accessibility, but what kind of a show this is and, and how far you push? and or, or was this always, you know, does this come fairly easily, this kind of, I wouldn't say broad voice, but accessible voice? Um, I, we did have conversations early on. Um, I think our second episode, the the first episode we turned in after the pilot, mm-hmm. um, I think it was a case of that restraint we've been talking about, sort of going by the wayside initially, because all the writers were so excited to be together, sure. that it was a really dirty script. And I think <laughs> really? we do, in general, go to sex jokes too much, and it's something I want to try and pull back on. Um, but the room gets dirty, and the material going in the script was dirty, and the response from um, the network was, you know, this show's going on at 8.30. This, we thought this was going to be a family comedy. The pilot presented itself as such, and, um, and we heard that loud and clear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, a, it's a challenge. I mean, we can't use, you know, people, people have, you know, a certain number of tools they can use to be funny. Certainly, dirty language is one of the most popular, which we can't use. And then the material, the, the content, how far we can push the envelope, is another one we have to mm-hmm. uh, really police ourselves on. Um, uh, you know, I think that the jokes of a sexual nature... That's the one that I think is the is the one we go to too much mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> is too easy at times, um, but they're funny and they make the writers in our room laugh sure. and uh, and they're universally relatable too. Mm-hmm. So it's a challenge, but yeah. um, but to be at the eight thirty time slot after Big Bang, which is a sort of mm-hmm. different kind of show tonally, yeah. um, which is full of sex jokes. Let's be honest, it, like, <laughs> from the title down. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, uh, but we uh, we it, it is a challenge sure. and, and, and a line we have to walk. And I felt like in the concept, I was excited by how hopefully accessible it could be generationally. Mm-hmm. I felt like by design there was going to be something for everyone in there mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, the actual tone of the jokes and the content of the jokes. That's a, a trickier trigger dance for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also, it's funny, There, it feels like because of the structural nature, there's an opportunity to play all different kinds of comedy, too. I mean, you guys have great slapstick in there, uh, which you don't get a lot on TV anymore. I feel like Modern Family did it early on uh, in their run, but there's not a lot, because, and I guess it's you know hard to find actors who can pull it off, but you know, I, I like that about the show. Well, thank you. I... I um Another thing I'm so excited about with this structure is I feel like we have the platform to 
really pushed the envelope in so many different ways, storytelling-wise. I feel like um, we can tell a story because they're independent of the other three within an episode that is slapstick, one mm-hmm. that's much more dramatic, one that's yeah. much more emotional, um, and uh, and then even start playing with the form. Some of the, uh, We just did something um, in our um, season hour-long finale where we have uh, an entire story as a fantasy sequence, which we've never done before, but I want to start sort of doing those things yeah. to let people know like sort of anything goes and um and uh and, and the writers are excited by that sort yeah. of freedom that's i like that you you know having built this thing can now fairly quickly get kind of ambitious with absolutely. the kinds of stories being told that's Ab- cool absolutely and we started i was really i stuck to my guns a lot about keeping the stories independent early on um and not having them tied together so much uh and I'm not sure why I was so stubborn with that. In some ways, it's easy to have them tie together, hmm. and it's harder to tell a good, solid, independent story. Sure. Um, but I really wanted to define the show um, in its infancy as these four independent things. And I think once then I got comfortable with everyone accepting that and being on board with that's the format, now, certainly toward the end of the season, in fact, our, our season finale has multiple threads that all come together in the final story in a a huge way. So Mm -hmm. I think I'm letting go of sort of um, that idea that they all need to be so independent. And and I'm starting to see how um, uh, the response we get from people, that it's fun and exciting to see ideas Mm -hmm. pop up in one story and then creep up in another and things come back and tie in. um, Well, there is, I mean, even in the stories where they don't tie together, there is a continuity Right, these people are real people, and this is where it strays from the Looney Tunes inspiration. Is you know, if something happens in that first act, th- that person still exists in the same world, in the same timeline. And that was something that I had to explain sort of early on to everybody that if someone gets punched in the nose in the first story, yeah. there's a, there's a chance that they're going to have like a bruise on their nose or you know whatever yeah. in the second or third or fourth story in that episode, yeah. um, within the continuity of their life at that time. Uh, that's consistent. What does the the short story structure, you know, outside of Looney Tunes, what what does that give you as a storyteller? What does that do for you? It it's huge for us. It's um, uh, our writers only stayed for dinner like five times this year. Um, it is. I'd imagine breaking story becomes much easier for a full episode. It's incredibly efficient. I yeah. think um, it has its challenges too that we can talk about. But I think. Um, when you're trying to tell a traditional sitcom story with an A story, a B story, and a C runner, um, and everything is so tied together, um, uh, timeline-wise, location-wise, cast member-wise, when you have story problems and you need to rewrite that, you're pulling threads that affect so many other different elements of that yeah. script. We have none of that to deal with. I've spent, I, I can remember being in a writer's room on a show, spending two hours on just trying to figure out, you know, the timeline of like, well, if this character's in this story here, how do we oh. fix this? We never waste any time on that. It's just focusing on what's the funniest story we can tell from beginning, middle to end. What's the comedic hook? What's at stake? What's the problem? What's the payoff? And that's it. And then when we're table reading and rewriting, if a story's working, it's done. Hmm. And if it's not, we're only rewriting that one seven-page right. story. Wow. Um, and sometimes we can say, we don't have to be precious about it. We can say, um, you know what? Uh, let's just throw it out and we'll write a whole new one today. And we can... Because it's seven pages, we can do because that. Because it's seven pages and we can do it. Yeah. Um, and it gives us a lot of freedom and flexibility. Uh, and... Um, and, uh, again, that's one of the things I'm most excited about uh, in terms of the structure. It really, um, in some ways, it feels like we're cheating. <laughs> in some ways, you are. Um, I, I do want to talk about the challenges of that. And it occurs to me that in the same way that, you know, because it, it's such a compressed uh, story and a number of pages in which to tell a story, 
that it could become too loud in the comedy, it could also feel too slight in the story. So how do you how do you keep that? How do you keep the stakes real? It can it can feel too slight and too thin and superficial, and never let the characters get to a deeper place, uh, and that is a challenge. Uh, and something we're continuing to sort of um, work on and refine. I think we've started to arc and serialize the, the world of the characters a little more. So um, as the audience learns a little more about who they are, what they do, and their relationships with, the, with, with each other, we can go deeper into that over a longer period, over a, you know, a series of stories. And I think that allows us to get a little deeper yeah. in, in its entirety because we don't have the ability to do it on, you know, in a singular story as easily. Um, uh, some of the other challenges are, as I said... We did 22 episodes this year. That means we had to come up with 88 stories. It's a huge amount of material to generate in terms of conceptual ideas. Seven pages isn't the big part of it, but coming up with really strong, relatable, funny situations 88 times um, is, is a lot. And the other challenge is, which I didn't anticipate at all, is that the one rule is, no character has to be in every story within the four-story block, but every character needs to be represented at least once. Yeah. And the room would find, I mean, this happened countless times where we'd be looking at the board and we'd be all excited. We have four great stories and then someone would be like, uh, you know, Colin Hanks isn't in this one. <laughs> like, oh, no. So we'd have to sort of yeah. take a great idea, put it on the back burner, come up, you know, quickly with a new idea that encompassed all, all our cast. But I would imagine you could also, you know, you'd have ideas for four episodes at a time and can sort yes. of shift things around. Which would, and we would do that. Easier. So there was a lot of that sort yeah. of minority report board work of, <laughs> yeah. like, shifting and moving and sliding stories. And um, uh, <laughs> But that was a challenge that I did not anticipate. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And did your writers, uh, were they sent to produce their episodes? Um, the ones who um, wanted to be on stage, I welcomed... Um, some of the writers just weren't as excited about being on stage um, sure. and were more comfortable in the room, and that was fine too. Uh, and they did not um, they did not spend as much time in, in editing as I think I had initially planned. And I think it was more just a, a product of the sort of rapid fire um, pace that we were working at. Um, but I would love to have them get more involved. I know when I was a younger writer coming up, it was it was super fun to get to sit in an editing room with with the executive producers, and um, and I think it's a hugely important aspect of the production process. So, um, uh, but what was I guess unique about ours is even though the scripts would say they were written by one person, sometimes that person didn't write any of the four stories in that script. We would just go in order around the room and put right. a person's name on it, and then divvy up the individual four stories to to writers all the time. So there's a constant churning of scripts coming in and people going out and people banging out their seven or eight pages oh for God. their story, um, which I thought was fun really because um, it kept the writers so involved and it kept them yeah. constantly writing new things. Again, something I'm really excited about with this with this world and the format is that we get to pretty much write about anything. It's not, I've been on shows where... Um, I was on a show called uh, Big Day, mm-hmm. um, which was about, it was sort of 24 as a comedy about a wedding. Yeah. So it was real time of sort of a wedding. And um, and it was a really funny pilot. And but, but early on in the process, I think all the writers sort of realized, oh my God, we're just writing about this wedding all day long, every day. And what's so fun and exciting, I think about... Uh, about the world of life in pieces is any writer could come in with any idea of, or any personal incident that just happened to them or anecdote or story from their lives and we have a way to apply it to our world. Yeah, absolutely. But then, I mean, I guess the question becomes how do you, how do you keep the voice and tone of the show? Do you touch every script? Um, I do. I did not. I, the writers really wrote the bulk of it and then I would go over mm-hmm. the scripts. Um, so... You know, the, the in terms of keeping the tone, it sort of fell on my shoulders, sure. and um, 
and uh, but all the credit goes to the staff of the writers who just generated a ton of amazing material. It really does. I mean, as a writer, it sounds like it, you're not. It's such a fun process where you're not waiting around for your script to come through. And as much fun as the room can be, just dashing out those seven pages <laughs> seems really cool. It's great. It really, it really is fun. And 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 over the years, I'd been on so many staffs where you get. You get saddled with a story where you know it's not working from the moment mm-hmm. you go out on that story, and you know it's going to be a you know a grind, and you spend days on an outline and then a week or two on the script, and this is just so much more immediate. If it's not working, we're going to throw it out and do something new, or we're going to give you another shot to do it again in yeah. a different way, um, and that made it just it made it fun and. And you're not ruining everyone's day by right, <laughs> just exactly. throwing away seven exactly. pages. That's kind of great. Uh, God, it all sounds so sane. Is this? It, it sounds like it was a reaction to things you have worked on. I think it is. I, I mean, I, I honestly felt bad even the five nights that we did stay for dinner because I felt like there's no reason that the room mm-hmm. has to stay late. Um, I, I have been on too many shows where we would pull all-nighters I remember one night driving home at 8 in the morning after staying up all night in a writer's room, oh and I was God. stuck in traficic rush hour of everyone else coming into work right. as I was trying to get home and it's the closest I've come to crying as an adult. It really <laughs> was insane. it was insane and there's no reason for it. But no. when your script gets thrown out, you know, and you're about to shoot and you got to generate 30 pages, you stay late. Wow. Um so uh uh, I, I had definitely learned the hard way of, of what that is. And I've also been around people who didn't care to go home to their families and sure. all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, family is really important to me and um, and to the writers on our staff. So I think it's uh, um, the process seems to be sane and working. That's really cool. It's, it's nice to hear. I mean, I, I do feel like there is this generation of showrunners coming in who have that attitude where... We're not. We're not going to stay past eight o'clock. We're not going to stay for dinner if we don't have to. We like our families. We want to have normal lives. In addition to trying to make something good. Yeah, uh, it's nice to see. It's, it's great. Um, what uh, What were the first couple of rooms that you were in? Um, well, definitely sitting in yeah. the writers' room of Larry Sanders was because. Yeah. Um, I was a production assistant the first year, and then the second year I was the. Um, assistant to the showrunner, John Regi, um, who was like a mentor to me. Um, mm-hmm. And um, when I got basically all my work done for him, Gary Shanling would allow me to come sit in the writer's room and observe. And I just spent hours every day just sitting there watching this amazing group of writers. Yeah. Uh, John Regi, Maya Forbes, Judd Apatow. Um, it was uh, John Beatty. Um, <laughs> it, it was a, a, an amazing group of people. And... Um, and so I really got, I had the fortunate experience of getting to see what to do, what not to do, how it all worked, and really spend hundreds and hundreds of hours in the end of sitting there observing without having to be on the line to be responsible yeah. for generating material within the room or any of that pressure. Um, and eventually they did let let me start to pitch jokes, and nice. um, uh, which was great, uh, but that was where I really learned early on what it's what it takes. And and even with that room, I remember seeing early on the times when they would do things that just weren't cutting it. And hmm. and you know, Gary would <laughs> would let them know, uh, and and that gives you a sense of confidence too to know that even the peop- the best in the business. Um, can still have bad pitches, stupid sure. pitches, embarrassing pitches, and that's okay. From a, a room behavior standpoint, it must have been just interesting. I mean, you have like some big personalities in that room and some yes. heavy hitters in comedy. What did you take from that as far as how to behave and, and your first couple of jobs? I, I, I learned early on you need to get in the boat and row. I think the the people who who put their foot down too much or get too sensitive and defensive um, sort of bring the room to a screeching halt. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the people as talented as they may be that become challenging to work with. And um, so I learned not to get too precious with um, my ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you really are there to serve the vision of the showrunner and um and not that you should just be a yes man because i don't think certainly as a showrunner now that is absolutely not what i want you want to present your ideas if they're met with resistance then you move on to another idea um and so i think um watching those personalities and how they navigated that was a was a big lesson i took from them yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean i i assume it must have been a difficult show because it was Gary's show, but he wasn't the showrunner. But he is, you know, the creator and star and executive producer, I think. Like, the, there's a lot to juggle there. And it's a thing you must have dealt with over the years, too, where you have these sort of big personalities in various creative positions. It's, it's, um, well, first of all, Gary's like, he's such a genius and he's so brilliant and amazing. And that show, everything about that show was him. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that all the writers didn't contribute, you know, a huge amount of material. And, I mean, yeah, it's his vision. It's He's steering the show. Absolutely his vision. And what was amazing about that show, too, was that what was going on behind the scenes of filming the show sort of fed what was in the show. And it became this amazing living organism that would just oh go in a God. circle and feed itself. <laughs> so it was kind of genius in that way. And that generated a lot of the material. And Gary was savvy enough and insightful enough to see it all and then be able to put it in and use it um but it is challenging i've been on a bunch of shows where um the star of the show either has a a producerial uh you know role in the show or uh is trying to run the show as Mm -hmm. well and it's tough. It's tough to be in it, to be shooting all day, to then come up and deal with the writer's room. Again, yeah. that's why um, a lot of shows have terrible hours. You hear about the hours on 30 Rock because of that. The hours on Bob Patterson with Jason Alexander were terrible as a mm-hmm. result of that because these people can't be you know, in the writer's room and shooting all day um, when they're the star of a show. And uh, so... Um, it's a lot, you know, having having people come up from the stage, realize what you've been working on. And it happens on every show. The room is working uh, and the showrunner will come in and change things. But it's it's it seems even more um, extreme when the actor is the star of the show. Sure. Of course. Uh, at or what the, point yeah, the, is, yeah, is the creative force as yeah. well? Um, at what point did you say that you, you wrote the Larry Sanders spec while you were at? Larry Sanders? Yes. Uh, did you get an agent off of that spec? I did. Aaron Kaplan, who's now the producer of the show, he was an agent at the time. Oh, and he repped one of the uh, writers, Lester Lewis. And um, I gave my spec to the writing staff. And a couple of them were nice enough to pass it along to their agents. Oh, and good. then I, I met with Aaron Kaplan and signed with him Nice. Um, off of that. And then how long was it until you got your first staff job? Do you remember taking those meetings? I do. Um, I remember my meeting. Futurama was my first staff mm-hmm. job meeting. Was this while I was still at Fox? Yeah. Okay. So it was like the last season at Fox. It was the first season oh, of okay. the show. Oh, I thought you had said it was last. Okay. No, it was the last um, six episodes of their first order of 13 of, oh, the fir- of the whole show. Yeah. So they had just started. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. They had just started and... Uh, so I, maybe it took me a year or mm-hmm. a year, uh, I think. Um, but that was reasonable. my first, that was my first, um, showrunner meeting. Oh, really? And Who was then, running the show? Uh, um, David Cohen. Okay. Uh, and I remember, um, being super nervous and going in and they, had maybe six of the writers and producers sitting around a table, um, just all sort of staring at me. And they're all very sweet, but they were just sort of, you know, they ask you about your life and and what's going on with you. And I wasn't sure if I should try and be funny or not, so I didn't, which I think (laughs) is a good idea. Uh Um, uh, I think with that group especially. Yeah, and it gets back to that whole idea of restraint um, and trying too hard. Uh, So we just talked and chatted, but they asked me if I was into science fiction, and I was like, I I have to confess, I'm not, uh, and at all. And they didn't seem to care. Um, I think they wanted to try and bring in a different voice Mm -hmm. that 
Um, uh, which was maybe in the end a, a, a noble attempt, but kind of a failure for them. Uh, um, but that was my first showrunner meeting, and then I got the offer. And, That's really funny. Um, took the job. We talk a lot about sort of you know the non-writing part of being a writer, which is these showrunner meetings. It's pitching stuff. Um, how are you? Let, let's talk about you know you have had to staff a bunch of times. And it's always shitty. It's always a harrowing time where you're running around uh, having these meetings. What? Do, how do you present yourself in these meetings? And and you know how do you how do you try to rise above the other applicants? I think I think early on I learned that um, if you go in trying to be what you think uh, they want you to be, you're going to fail. Um, and I think if you just um, go in and be yourself, knowing that you have the sort of confidence in the idea that if it's a match meant to be, it's going to be meant to be. And if it's not, it's not because you're a bad writer or you're a bad person and they're a bad writer or they're a bad person. It's just not a marriage. Um, and so I think if you just have the belief that um, that if you're nice and you present yourself as someone who's easy to get along with, and can work well in this group, which is such a sensitive, um, yeah. delicate balance <laughs> of personalities, um, then I think that's a successful showrunner meeting because they're already looking at your material. Mm-hmm. I don't think that in a showrunner meeting you're going to really be able to convince somebody you're a good writer or not a good writer in that meeting. I think your material will speak for itself. <laughs> and then it just comes down to, is this a cool person that we want to hang out with? Um, and I think if you just be yourself... Um, uh, and don't try and be anything uh, other than that, then you have your best chance to mm-hmm. to succeed. Yeah, it makes sense. And was this year, uh, being on the flip side of it, being on the hiring side of it, was this? did you have the same attitude? Were you able to carry that over and say, do I want to spend you know seven hours in a room with this person? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And um, it, it was interesting to be on this sort of other side of the couch, coming, you know, having yeah. people come in. What's also crazy is that um, you had just been through three weeks of pilot hell and you're absolutely exhausted and fried and you're sitting there talking to people and you're trying to remember their names and you don't even know what time of day it is and who you're talking to and what's going on. Um, so a lot of times I would rely on the people to do most of the talking um, uh, when my questions would, would run dry. Uh, but it was... It was... Um, it's, a, it's a challenge, but I think you get a sense of... Um, who seems like a good person and a fun person and um, who's got that sort of spark and sure. charm. And, um, sure. and uh, what's tricky is also is some people are amazing writers and they're very shy and awkward socially and having to sort of uh, work your way through that and pass that in these meetings um, can be difficult. And that comes down to, again, uh, can you, as the showrunner, try and get them to open up? Can you try and get them to be comfortable? Um, and then also, can you find out from other people who know them, you know, how they how they really will be and yeah. and who they really are? I wondered about that, about like you know, outside recommendations, whether it comes early in the process or late. That has to weigh in. I mean, huge. It's to- who they worked with counts, and how the how they worked with those people counts. It's huge. Um, uh, Alex Sulkin, who is a member of our staff this year, who's going, he's leaving to go run Family Guy, um, which is a sad loss for us, but uh, um, it's great for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, early on, had recommended um, uh, a woman, Maggie Mull, and um, said she's amazing, she's fantastic, uh, and I had never heard of Maggie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yeah, you're not on Twitter. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we and, all know Maggie Mall. Um, and so uh, so his recommendation was huge sure. on that front, and that played a huge part. I, like, I already went into that meeting really wanting to like her, mm-hmm. um, and she's amazing, and she's, she's been incredible for our staff, but that was something where, where a referral really played a big part. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, this attitude of, you know, go in, be nice, <laughs> uh, does that go for pitching as well? What's your pitching style like? Oh, pitching is <laughs> such a difficult thing, as you know. It really, um, every network is different in terms of the tone of the room, first of all. Um, 
Pitching to me is all about energy. Like you just have to have energy and enthusiasm and it's so hard to get it up every time. And so many people, myself, most of all included, I'm not a performer. That's that's why I'm writing is because exactly. I'm not a performer. <laughs> Yet you really have to kind of perform. Boy, pitching, I think, <laughs> I, you know, again, getting back to sort of the theme of our conversation here of trying too hard, I think. Oftentimes, I failed in pitches because I tried to do too much. Mm -hmm. I tried to put too much material, too many ideas, and it's too much for people to absorb. I think they really want to get what's that central idea, what's what's the central comedic point of view of these characters, what's the easiest way for me to see this world, and not only that, what's the easiest way for me to then relay that to my bosses, and how do I um, encapsulate this idea quickly and easily in a coherent fashion to the people above me to approve it. Uh, that That's the challenge. And um, But you obviously, you you don't want to come in and be a dick. So you have to present yourself, I think. Um, and, and most of these situations, you've now had relationships with these people right. where you've met them to get staffed on shows and stuff yeah. like that. So they, they know, we all know each other, right. sort of. Um, and they they also know how nerve-wracking it is for writers to come in. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know... They're very understanding, but it still doesn't make it easy, and it still doesn't make when you're pitching your heart out and they're just staring at you blankly, and oh. you got to just keep going. you got to keep, keep going, and you can't be deterred, um, even if you know that it's not going anywhere. Well, I think this realization that it's the clarity of the idea, right, because it has to be communicated. I think knowing that has to be enormously helpful, and, and that does take some time to learn. It's a total skill, and it's something I'm still... Uh, working on all the time um it's really challenging and i think that's what when it comes down to just sort of the the lightning in a bottle of like this idea is a good idea Mm -hmm. because of that and when you have other ideas that seem like good ideas but you can't do that with it no matter how hard you try or how gifted you are at encapsulating it and making it coherent and Mm -hmm. simple sometimes they just can't be what were some uh successful pitches for you what do you think worked about them? <laughs> what were some unsuccessful pitches for you? Oh, I've had many unsuccessful pitches. <laughs> we all have. I pitched a show um, years and years ago that I was determined was going to be <laughs> the next great show um, uh, called The Alibi Agency. And it was about people who would make up lies for you to help um, help. Uh, <laughs> keep whatever, if you're having an affair right. or whatever um, whatever thing is going on in your life, um, they were your world of making it seem real. Uh, and I got a lot of sort of what are you doing kind of pitches, like looks <laughs> back in that pitch, in those pitches, uh, in those pitches. But um, some successful pitches, I pitched um, a show... It's a familiar idea, um, but I think uh, what made the that was part of what made the pitch successful um, about and this was maybe eight or ten years ago now, uh, sort of that sort of boomerang lifestyle of mm-hmm. uh, of adult children who are who are refusing to grow up uh, while the father is forced into early retirement and doesn't want to give up working. So it's this very simple idea of kids who are refusing to start working while a dad um, doesn't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what, what, how that affects the family now that he's home and trying to get them to sort of um, make it in the, in the world. Um, it was a very, it's a simple concept. And mm-hmm. so I think that was... Uh, easily understood and and relayed to the bosses. Mm-hmm. And when you're pitching comedy, so much of it comes down to the characters uh, rather than the premise. The premise can generally be sort of this simple idea. I think that that tends to work best, especially in network. But how long are your pitches? How much time do you spend on character? What do you what do you give when you're talking about character? Uh, I try. My pitches are too long. My pitches, <laughs> as I was saying, my pitches are twenty or twenty five minutes. I think mm-hmm. like. 15 is good. That's so hard. Um, And again, it comes down to that confidence of knowing you've given them enough information and you're not trying too hard to um, fill in all the holes and the gaps because their imagination can fill it in better than you can deliver it. Uh, So I think that um, 
What was the question was how how long are they and what was the oh how, how much do yeah, I spend on character? I'm focusing on character. <clears throat> um, I think the trick to a good pitch is being able to say who a character is without using adjectives. Um, with describing a couple um, moments that really define them quickly mm. and easily. That's great. Uh, and he's the type of guy who would. Mm-hmm. And, and those sorts of things um, go a long way, again, to speeding up your pitch. Um, so you're not talking yeah. for 25 minutes. But you're also and, giving a situation. And you're giving That's a situation. Really and if you can sort of always think in that context, I think you're, you have a chance of of um, getting people to understand who you're seeing this character as mm-hmm. and and uh, what their voice is. Yeah, um, you're also sort of building the world of the show. Yeah, because uh, these situations have to exist within the show. Yes, uh, that's really that's very smart. I'm using that. <laughs> <Stealing> that. <laughs> that's great. Um, we're just about out of time. Uh, I. I Want to end as we always do by asking you. Well, first let's let's talk about this finale uh, of Life in Pieces. Okay, um, it's an hour long. It's an hour long. So it's you have two, more room to play. It's two half hours oh, that we're bridging together. Um, so it's going to cross the commercial break straight into the next episode. Um, Interesting. Uh, and so it will feel like an hour long block, which mm-hmm. is exciting for us. But is it eight stories? It's eight stories, and what we talked about that doing. Uh, we talked about that. What would we do for longer stories? What would we do? Um, it's eight stories. Um, so uh, we, when I was when I was thinking about the pilot, I was really trying to focus on each one of these four stories being a phase in life, and I feel like we're now ending. Hopefully. The last episode um, sort of relaunching that idea mm-hmm. of here are these phases in life again, here are some changes to them, but they're sort of all represented, and it's going to pivot us into the second season, um, launching a bunch of new um, arcs and story ideas for. Um, all of our characters. Nice. That's great. That sounds really cool. Um, is there a character or a type of story that you particularly enjoy writing on this show? Um, I love writing them all. I think the character that was most representative of me and my wife and our life, um, certainly from the pilot, uh, was is the Colin Hanks and Zoe Lister Jones mm-hmm. couple? Um, they, in the birth order of the structure of the family and everything, he was the character that represented me. Um, and um, we now have three kids, my wife and I, uh, and um, a lot of the material. And that's the pilot story was based on our life and their subsequent stories. Um, uh, hmm. um, Colin Hanks being the sort of favorite little baby who who gets off easy, I think is something that my brother and sister can tell you. <laughs> Maybe um, takes after me. Uh, so the but I love writing for all the characters, and um, it's really just fun hearing an idea from a writer based on something that happened in their life or something that's happening in our lives, and figuring out who we can apply that to within our. <laughs> within our different toolbox of characters. Yeah, that's cool. That's a lot of fun. Um, well, congratulations. Remind me when the season finale is. You know the date. Uh, the season finale is March 31st. All right. And it's um, Thursday night at um, 8.30 through to 9.30. Um, and we'll end, as we always do, by asking, what are you watching on television? What are you excited or inspired by? What is your room talking about? What are you and your wife talking about? Um, we... <laughs> Have you had people answer they've been working too much to watch yes, any TV? all the time. <laughs> um, they say, I can't wait to wrap up so I can watch all of this. We locked <laughs> all our, of the Americans. We, lo- we locked our last episode um, yesterday, so I am now ready to binge in nice. a big way. Um, we did somehow make it through um, Making a Murderer. Um, 
and uh, I'm really excited for Game of Thrones to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to watch The Americans. Uh, and there's so many shows that I feel like I need to catch up, catch up on that people are talking about. Uh, um, but uh, and a lot of movie screeners. Um, oh, you're way behind. That I'm way behind <laughs> on, so I'm excited to catch up on those. Um, we, you talked a little bit about you know Looney Tunes being an early inspiration. What were some of the other early things that I, you were into? I grew up watching a lot of TV, and I loved um, Cheers was my favorite show, and Mash was my other favorite mm-hmm. show. Um, but I kind of, you could kind of put anything in front of me, and I would watch it. I sort of was one of those where I yeah. could find sort of anything interesting. Um, so I really, I loved it all. Um, Family Ties, I loved. Um, uh, but I would watch the good ones and the bad ones, and there were a lot of bad ones. <laughs> um, uh, and But Looney Tunes, um, certainly, being able to watch that. And it really stood out uh, well above even all the other cartoons at the time for me. Not that I didn't like Tom and Jerry and Woody Woodpecker and all those things, but... No, there's something like, different going on. Bugs was really something special that I responded <laughs> to. And again, I just loved the format so much because even if I didn't love that story, mm-hmm. I knew there was another one coming up quickly, and it was so addictive. And i that's what I took to create Life in Pieces, and right. I hope that that's sort of translating in that same same viewing way. For sure, for sure. I think that's really... It's really cool that you were able to use that inspiration and and have it translate in that way. Congratulations. Congratulations on the season. Thank you so much. It was really nice to meet you. You as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 